Well, I suppose it is a good thing that we don't think much or talk much around here about what to expect from the person preaching in the pulpit. Uh, That's for, for good reasons. This is a place where the Word of God is proclaimed and where the people want the Word of God to be proclaimed and where we even lift up and, and cherish the, the flawed men that God uses to bring the Word of God to us. And so I, I know your hearts and I know the last thing you'd ever want to do is armchair quarterback the guy who is delivering the Word of God to you. Uh, I've benefited from that grace and that myself. Um, at the same time, I know that we all know what it feels like when God shows up in a sermon, when the Spirit speaks with power beyond a flawed man opening up the Scriptures and telling you the points and being accurate and illustrating it well, there's just something special when God is in it. You know the feeling, I imagine, the difference between a week of Yes, that what he said is in the text. Thank you, Pastor. And then another week of, yes, what he said is in the text. Thank you, Pastor. And then a week of, oh, wow. Right? When the Spirit shows up, something happens. And it's hard to know the difference, though. Was that the Spirit speaking? Or did I just pay more attention than I paid last time? Or did he just use better illustrations than he used last time? Uh, Surely there's a difference between a well-given sermon and an attentive listener uh, versus the Spirit of God just kind of showing up in power and in fire. But it's hard to tell the difference from the pew. It's hard to tell the difference from the pulpit. Well, what the Lord is giving us through the Apostle Paul today is an answer to that question. Uh, What's the difference between a well-prepared, well-delivered sermon and the Spirit of God showing up to speak in power. What's the difference between a naturally good speaker and supernatural power in the worship service? Today we're going to dive deep as the Apostle Paul peels back the onion, one of the spiritually powerful preachers of the book of Acts, one of the men who got up full of the Spirit, it says, and delivered incredible sermons that were of great impact to the hearers. We'll hear him open up the onion and peel it back and say, here's what I was doing. Here's the difference between a spiritually powerful sermon and something that is just built on natural abilities. And that can be of great value to us. That can be of great value to you as listeners to a sermon to know, what do I need to expect from this guy in the pulpit? What do I need to listen for when I'm hearing preaching? It could be of even more value to those of you who are thinking about maybe going into preaching one day. Perhaps God's wrestling with you about the call into ministry and you're considering that. You'll want to know, okay, what is it the Lord that is calling me to do? How do I avoid going up there in ministry and making it about my skill and my ability? How do I do that in a way that invites the Spirit of God to speak in power? That's what we're looking at this morning. If you're just joining us, We are in a series through the book of 1 Corinthians that we are calling Holy Love. Uh, This book was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And that's a church that had fallen deeply into the immorality and the self-centeredness of the world around them in the city of Corinth. And he writes to call them away from that back to a life of holiness and love. And that's why we're calling this series Holy Love. 
Today we ask the question, what does it look like for a holy and loving minister to speak the word of God and the spirit to show up in power? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. These are the words of the Lord, and through them the Spirit is helping us to identify what does supernaturally powerful preaching sound like so that we can know it when we hear it, and so that those of us who are laboring toward that end in our proclamation can get there. I'm going to give to you this morning six marks, six characteristics of spiritually powerful preaching, and then we'll talk about the result of it after that. Before we do that, let me give you kind of a quick tour of the passage. Uh, the, The situation here is that Paul had once preached in Corinth. He preached with great power. God said, I have many set aside for myself in the city. Keep preaching. Preach for 18 months, and a whole bunch of people came to Christ. Uh, But they had begun to put their confidence not in God's power that he displayed, but in the speaking abilities of the apostles and other men who preached to them. So they would walk around instead of saying, oh, what the Lord has done for me, they'd say, boy, did you hear Apollos' latest one? Man, did you hear what Peter said? Lifting up the men. And Peter and Paul and Apollos themselves were like, hey, that's not what we're doing here. We're trying to show you how great the Lord is, not how great our speaking abilities are. That had caused a lot of division in the Corinthian church because they were fighting over who was the best, and one person liked Peter more, and one person liked Paul more. And Paul was essentially writing here to say, guys, when I came to you, that's not how I was preaching. I wasn't some lofty rhetorician who gave a TED talk or a rousing speech. I was just some guy trembling before God and a lot of weakness telling you about the power of Jesus Christ. And so he shows them in verses 1 through 4 what he did. He basically says, here's what I did. I didn't try to impress you with lofty speech. I did focus on Jesus and the gospel. It's in verse 2. I especially focused on the cross of Jesus Christ. And he says in verses 2 and 3, And I preached in in much weakness, and I preached in the fear of God with fear and much trembling. And then he says in verse 6, I was wise about it. I imparted wisdom, but it was God's wisdom, not the world's wisdom. In verse 5, he gives us not the characteristic, but the results. He said, why did I do this? Right? He's done, here's what I did. Now here's why I did it. I did it that way because I want your faith to be in God and, and not in the power of men. So there's your little tour, there's your little walkthrough. We're going to go through that at a much slower pace now, and we've got this morning six characteristics of spiritually powerful preaching, and then the result. 
So first, spiritually powerful preaching is not trying to impress you. One way to say this is that the men delivering sermons with spiritual power are not trying to show off, and they do not want you to leave the room thinking about how great of a preacher they are. We see this in Paul's logic in verse 1. He says, when I came, I didn't come with that testimony in lofty speech or wisdom. If you wanted to impress people in Corinth, that was how you would speak. They were enamored with great public speakers. That was a bigger deal to them than our entertainers are to us. If you were the guy who could give a rousing speech, suddenly people cared about where you sat in the Colosseum and what events you were going to, and they were following you around because you were the celebrity now. And so Paul came knowing If I want these people to be all about Paul of Tarsus, I just got to give a rousing speech and I'll I'll have it, right? And so he goes and he does the opposite, right? He refuses to give a lofty, rousing speech. Not because it's bad to do so, but because he didn't want their faith to be in his power. He wanted their faith to be in God's power. So, we look at that and we say, okay, it's, he's not saying that it's bad to give a good speech. He's saying it's bad to go to a place, read what they want in a preacher, and then flaunt yourself as that before them. It's bad to try to impress the people with how good you are at this. So we translate that through different cultural windows all over the place, and every place has a little bit different of a picture of what they want in an entertainer, who they lift up in the world around them. There are some churches where how intelligent the speaker sounds is the biggest deal. If you sound like you know what you're talking about and you put doctor in front of your name and you make sure everybody knows that doctor is in front of your name and sound real intelligent and talk about Greek and Hebrew words, man, they will eat right out of your hand because this guy sounds smart. Now, a pastor can go before a crowd like that and say, well, I know how to impress these people. I just need to sound smart, right? Or he can go with love for God and love for others in his heart and ask, like the Apostle Paul did, okay, that's what they lift up in honor, but, but what do they need? They, they need to see that a man can stumble through sermons with a good old boy accent and not know too much, and still the Spirit can show up in power. They need to see that there is something better out there than intelligence. And so a modern preacher might make the same calculation. Okay, this would impress them, but it wouldn't be good for them. It would just make them trust in my intelligence. And so instead, I need to go and, and, and turn away from that and just speak to them like a normal, everyday person. There are other churches where the sermon is valued based on how loud it is, right? Somebody who can shout for 45 minutes, boy, that guy's full of fire, right? And a preacher can go before a crowd like that and make the same calculation. If he wants to make himself look great, I know how to do that. I don't even have to work hard. Just shout for 52 minutes and they will love me, right? Or he can say, okay, but, but what do they need and what would honor the Lord, Maybe what they need more is to hear a mild-mannered, soft-spoken man 
proclaim accurately what's in the text and to just see the Spirit come in power so that they will see that there is more than volume in speaking. So, Neither of those two are really happening around here in Greenwood, at least not in great measure, but how would we apply that here? What do people people in Greenwood lift up? What What do they honor and love? Well, people around here love a sense of authenticity in a speaker, and they love to hear practical wisdom from the pulpit because they want to know how to live a good life, and that's what they're trying to do in the suburbs. And just about anybody in the States who has access to a screen loves the shininess and the production that is in the entertainment world, and so we love shiny production like that. And a lot of us love a sense that things are really moving and shaking at church, like something's really going on here. I get to be part of something great if I go here. And so a preacher could come before a church and play to any of those things in order to make himself look good, right? Dedicate all of his time to really shiny production so that people say, oh man, those people are slick, right? That guy's slick. Or building up a constant sense that that things are really happening here and this place is blowing up so that there's energy and there's momentum and bring everyone in that way. Or appeal to a sense of authenticity, right? Which is good that we want a real human proclaiming the word to us. Uh, But our world today probably places too much emphasis on that and will flock too much to someone who reveals lots of details about themselves and it feels like he's just talking to you. So a self-centered preacher could say, "I'll, I'll play to that and I'll make myself look really good. Or... A preacher could come before a congregation with love for God and love for others and say, what do they need? Well, well, they need to see that good work matters. And so if you got the money to put into production or something, don't put a circus on, but do a good job. But there's more out there than than concerts and lights and smoke. Uh, They need to see that there's more out there than a preacher who feels real. They need to see and ordinary person up there in all of his weakness proclaiming the message of God and they need to see the spirit of God come in power so that they say oh there there is more than what I came here to see there are more than the natural things in the world there's the spirit of God there is God moving in power and that is what I want So it can be tough to figure out just how to apply this in certain situations, but maybe the way I would sum it up is to say that preachers have to work hard to know their people, and then they have to use that knowledge out of love for them and love for the Lord, and not to play the crowd to get honor for themselves. So anything I know about you guys, what the Lord's telling me here, use that to love them, use that to do better for them, but don't use that to win them over because you're not here to win people over to you. That means for those of you who are thinking of going into preaching, uh, what you would need to do is learn your people really quickly, know your people really well, know the context around you, but work to use that knowledge to love them and to love the Lord. Uh, Don't use that knowledge to build a following for yourself or better your own reputation in the community. And that means for those of us who listen to preaching, we all listen to preaching, even me, right? 
We've got to watch for that tendency, that temptation that is in every preacher's heart to try to impress you with how great we are, right? I wonder if there's ever been a preacher who hasn't fallen to that temptation at least once to try to impress his people with himself. But if that becomes his standard mode of operation, right? Showiness. Look how great of a preacher I am. Aren't I great as a preacher? You can almost hear it whispered in the way he delivers. If that becomes his standard mode of operation, if you've got influence, sit him down and set him straight. If I ever get like that, and you know me, sit me down and set me straight, right? And if you can't do that, I'd be as bold as to say, find another church to go to. You do not need a preacher who is consumed with how great they are or is trying to impress you with how great they are. So we got to watch our hearts, and we got to be on guard for preachers who fear man more than they fear God. Now, that point was largely negative. We are not trying to impress you. Uh, but what are we doing, right? You might have asked earlier, wait a minute, if there's no fancy production and the speaker isn't overly authentic and there's not awesome music and there's not a continued sense that things are moving or shaking, like what's going to draw people into church, right? How are we going to get them in here? What are we trying to point people to? And that brings us to the second mark of spiritually powerful preaching, It focuses on Jesus and the gospel. That's why we're trying to get the other stuff out of the way. That's why we don't want you to leave impressed with the lights and with the smoke and with the pastor and with the instruments. Because we want you to leave impressed with who Jesus is and what he has done for you. We do not want you to leave saying, what a great preacher. And we don't even want you to leave saying, what a great sermon. We want you to leave saying, I cannot believe what Jesus Christ did for me. All of our efforts are to point you on him and his greatness, and that's why we're getting ourselves and all of the other stuff out of the way. We see that point in verse 2 when he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What he means is, if, if you guys thought that there were only one and a half things that I knew in the whole universe, and it was Jesus and him crucified, right? If that's all I knew, that's just fine with me. If you guys thought that I wasn't fancy and I didn't know how to speak, I didn't know how to get in front of a crowd, I didn't know anything, but I knew Jesus, that's enough. And that's how we want you leaving here, right? Boy, that Jesus, what he has done for me. I have to admit to you, I had, um, I I rarely do this, but when I was writing this sermon, I had a big, ugly cry in my office on Thursday today. Uh, And I'll tell you why. Um, I remembered back to the day when I came to Christ, or at least when I think I probably came to Christ. Uh, I was at Warren Willis United Methodist Youth Camp, uh, which is in uh, Lakeland or Leesburg, Florida, a place I would go every summer, summer camp kind of atmosphere. I answered an altar call. And one of the things that's always bothered me is that I don't remember very much about that day. And so I look back and I'm like, I think I was converted that day, but I don't know. Um, But it occurred to me for the first time while writing this that I also don't remember anything about the preacher that delivered the gospel to me that day. I couldn't tell you what age range he was. Was he tall? Was he short? What did he look like? What did his voice sound like? How, what words did he use to articulate the gospel? 
I don't even know what his name was. But so help me God, I remember the name of the one that he told me about. Right? And all I could do is just break down and plead, God, would there be people randomly scattered throughout the earth one day who forget my name? Or, or even better, who forget your name, but who remember the name of Jesus? That's what we're going for in our preaching. We want you walking out knowing who he is. One of the ways we do that is in every sermon, we just try to hit pause somewhere and tell you who Jesus is and what his message is. And so I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to hit pause on the message. We're just going to take what sounds like a detour, but it's actually right to the bullseye. And I'm just going to tell you who Jesus is and what his message is. Uh, The most important things you need to know are that this Jesus we talk about uh, was the holy God of the Old Testament, the one true and living God before whom no sinner can stand and live. But he was wrapped up in human flesh And he walked around this dirty and sinful world, which alone is hard to wrap your mind around, like that holy God walking around with with dust on his feet. Um, And then what's even more amazing is that he lived a whole life and he never sinned when he did that. I I don't know, I've been in situations where I'm like, well, if I do this, it's sin, but if I do that, it's sin too. Like, what do I even do? How can I get out of this without doing something wrong? He even made it out of those without ever sinning. He made it through the perplexing situations without doing wrong. Uh, He never once sinned, but he came and he bore the dust of the earth on his feet and bore our sins upon him. And so though he had never sinned, He was punished and crucified like a sinner deserves to be done. Uh, He did that to offer himself as a payment for our sins. Uh, Because what we deserve is is death and judgment from God for our sins against him. Uh, And what Jesus said is, I will take that upon me. I will take your sin upon me. And I will go die and be judged in your place. And he does that on a a Roman cross. They crucify him. He is judged by God right there. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he cries out the words that we ought to be crying out. But instead, God gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Uh, Then he rose from the dead to guarantee and to show, see, I have power over death you trust in me, I can raise you from the dead. And what he offers to anyone who will trust in him is full forgiveness for their sins, full payment and pardon for their sins, resurrection from the dead on the last day, eternal life with him forever, and so much more that I don't have time to tell you about. And so my plead with you and call with you this morning is would you put your trust in that Jesus and find what many of us in this room have found in him. That's who Jesus is. And that's what Paul means when he says Christ and him crucified. What he's saying here when he says, I determined to know nothing except that, is that what should stick with you when you walk out of this room is that. Who Jesus is, how amazing he is, and what he has done for me. There's nothing wrong if you walk out thinking, oh, that last song was really beautiful. As long as that's, you know, this portion of your heart and your heart is overwhelmed at how good God is. Or as long as what you mean is, oh, that song pointed me to Jesus and I love Jesus, right? 
We try to structure everything in our worship service around this idea. And if you have ever felt like worship here was a little different, or if preaching here is a little different, well, really, this big portrait Paul is painting is what we're trying to go for. Uh, When we do that opening prayer, what we want you to be impressed with is Jesus Christ. And when we sing our songs, we pull them from all eras of church history, and we don't make a big deal out of one style of music, but they are all about Jesus because we want you to leave impressed with Christ and him crucified. And the same thing is going on. I'm, I'm shooting for what Paul is doing here, whether I hit it or not, because I want you to leave impressed with Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what that means for us, what we do in response, is... As listeners to sermons, we listen for Jesus in the gospel. Right? We don't listen for, well, did he tell enough jokes this week? Right? And we don't listen for, well, how good were the stories, though? Right? I mean, those things help, but we're listening for Jesus and his gospel. And the men who are doing what I'm doing, and your Sunday school teachers, and your Sunday school class, and many others, are laboring to point your attention to who Jesus is and what he has done. That's because the whole Bible is about Jesus. Now, you might ask, now, wait a minute, Pastor, I thought what you did was you took one book of the Bible at a time, and you go through it piece by piece, and you're supposed to tell me what that little piece of the Scripture says. Isn't that how you do it? Why are you saying you do it like this? Well, yes, that is how we do it, because every one of those little pieces is about Jesus, and so the, the scriptures, or, the, or you might say the tool that God has given us for proclaiming Jesus Christ. But John says of the prophet Isaiah that Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him, right? Isaiah is about Jesus. And Jesus, at the end of the book of John, walks on the road to Emmaus with a, a few men. And he opens up the scriptures, beginning with Moses, and goes through the whole Old Testament and shows how every page of it is really about him. And they say, were not our hearts burning within us while he walked with us, right? That's what we want here. We'll go through every page of this thing, show how it points to Jesus Christ in a prayer that you might say, was not my heart burning within me when he talked about that Jesus from the Bible? That's spiritually powerful preaching because that focuses on Jesus and the gospel. Okay, the next mark of spiritually powerful preaching comes from those same words, particularly the words Christ and him crucified, the crucified part. Now, one of the things that Paul is doing here, he's got a double meaning. He is speaking of Jesus and his gospel. And in other parts of the scriptures, in his letters, he will talk about the gospel. He'll say, basically, God kill me if I don't preach the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God, right? Uh, for salvation, for the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And so he knows how to talk about the gospel in these terms, but here he doesn't say Christ and his good news or Christ and his, he says Christ and him crucified. Why does he say it like that? Well, because back in chapter 1, verse 18, he said, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but who we are being saved, it's the power of God. In other words, the lost world will think that the cross of Jesus Christ is foolish, particularly in their era because it was a cross, and that's what you did to the most despicable people, right? It's, it's shameful 
to follow someone who was, you follow someone who was crucified? Like, are you crazy, right? There's public shame on those who do that. And so he says the word of the cross is foolish to them, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And here he goes back to that sense. Uh, I wasn't trying to seek honor among you. I wasn't trying to impress you, but I preached Christ and, and even the shameful stuff, even the crucifixion I proclaimed to you. So he is making a point that essentially spirit-filled preachers don't gloss over the stuff that seems shameful to the world around us. So the third point that is spiritually powerful preaching is bold about the aspects of Jesus that the world finds foolish. That means we do not try to draw you to Jesus Christ by hiding things about him. There are things about him that the world around us doesn't like. And that if I say too loudly, some of us might squirm in our chairs and say, oh, pastor, did you have to go there the week that I brought my friend to church? Like, I know it's in there, but oh, of all weeks. And what spirit-filled preachers have to do is just put that shame aside and just say, yep, it says that. Here it is, right? Christ and even the crucifixion, even the shameful stuff. So that means when we come across Jesus saying that in the beginning God made them male and female, and that means responding to a question about marriage, and that means marriage is between a male and a female, and everybody says, oh, did you have to say that the reason that, like, the day that I brought my gay friend to church? Like, yeah, we say that because that's the power of God, and we pray that the Spirit of God will move in your friend when we say things like that. That means when we come across difficult words like wives submit to your husband, or the word predestination is in there, and we just say it when it's in there and we squirm in our pews and go, Pastor, did you have to say that one? Yeah, we're bold about the things about Jesus that the world around us would find shameful and would revile us for. What that means for you is that when a preacher tells you something from the pulpit that you don't like but is definitely in there, cherish that preacher because very likely that is a man that the Spirit of God is upon. I'm not talking about people who make an act out of that, right? We are not Fox News anchors stirring up outrage, right? That's not what we're here to do. No, we tell you what the book says, whether you like it or not, right? Now, when we do that, there's a fleshly reaction, right? Ooh, I don't like that, right? I don't want to go back there. And what he's teaching us here is even the icky stuff, even the crucifixion of, of all things, when that is proclaimed, cherish a preacher who proclaims that to you. Okay, so that's the third mark. We move on, and Paul says in verse 3, I was with you in weakness. And there we get another mark of spiritually powerful preaching. Spiritually powerful preachers often have weaknesses. The Lord just likes to do it that way. Moses didn't want to go before the people of Egypt because he said, I, I can barely speak. It sounds like he's saying, like, I have a speech impediment. It probably is, I think, what he's saying. And God says, no, go with you. Aaron will go with you, right? Even though he has weakness, God is going to work through him. David, the greatest warrior probably in all of the Bible, was small and ruddy and, of all things, handsome in appearance. He was not your burly warrior type like his predecessor was. And God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conquer through you, right? He likes to do his work through weakness. 
Paul, who was writing this, had some great weakness, so great he called it a thorn in his flesh that was there to keep him humble. He says, I I prayed three times that the Lord would remove that, and he said every time, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. And so, contrary to our expectation, the most powerful preachers are often the ones who kind of have glaring skill weaknesses, whose voices sound a little funny or who just don't look quite right or they just they try to be funny but they aren't or some kind of weakness going on that the Lord says you're going to work through that because you're diligent but I'm going to keep it on you anyway and I'm going to make my strength perfect in my weakness Uh, in your weakness I mean so He does that because, as Paul's going to say in his next letter to them, he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. For God to put the treasures of the gospel, right, the pearl of greatest price, in, in a guy like me who's got weaknesses, and then urge me to proclaim it to you, or the last person who is in the pulpit before me and urge him to proclaim it to you through, a, through a, a flawed human like that, a weak person like that. That's the equivalent of taking gold coins and putting them in a clay pot that's both not very attractive and easy to break. Why did God do that? Why would he put his riches into guys like me? Because he wants to show that that power that comes when the word is preached is from God and not from men. If he does that through a weak man, you walk away saying, well, I know it wasn't him, right? I know it was God who did that. And that's what the Lord would do. So what that means for preachers and any of you who might be interested in preaching is that you do have to work through your weaknesses, right? Paul pleaded with the Lord, please take this from me, right? You don't just say, oh, well, I got, well you got to work through those weaknesses. But when the Lord does not take them from you and when you don't have success in them, you keep working through them, but you embrace them at the same time and you ask the Lord to speak powerfully even in your weakness. What that means for us as listeners is that we shouldn't be quick to dismiss a preacher who has a skill weakness or a physical weakness. Now, if he has a character weakness or a moral weakness, he cannot preach the Word of God. But if his weakness is in skill or ability, it's kind of tempting to be like, oh, that guy kind of wasn't as good as the last guy. I'm just going to walk out and not worry about it. But it may be that God's hand is upon that man to make his power known and weakness. So lean in. Listen for the gospel, listen for Jesus, and see if the Lord might proclaim his truth and power through a man who is weak. All right, let's move on. The next mark of spiritually powerful preaching is that the men preaching it demonstrate to you that they fear God. They show you that they fear God while they're preaching. We take this from the words after the word weakness. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Now, I need to tell you, there are some people who don't interpret this the way that I do. There are some who would say that because of whatever Paul's weakness was, uh, he was preaching before them, trembling before them because he was scared, because he was weak, and he looked like a weak and trembling man. I do not think that's what he means for two reasons. First, that's not how he describes himself anywhere else, and it's not how the book of Acts describes him. And second... 
Because the other places in his letters where Paul uses those words, fear and trembling, he's talking about the fear of God. Uh, He says to the Philippians at one point, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you. He's talking about trembling in heart before God. Uh, He speaks later to the Corinthians of Titus, and he says, Titus told me about your fear and your trembling, and he means that those people fear God. That's typically how Paul uses those words. So what I believe he is saying here is that I was there, and you saw how much I trembled before God as I proclaimed the word to you. He demonstrated with his shaking arms, with maybe a tremor in his voice. Everybody does it a little differently, but you heard him preached, and you, you knew this guy believes what he is saying, and this guy has a big picture of God. Here's a man who understands how great Jesus Christ is. Here's a man who is preaching in the fear of God. And there is something about that deep conviction that the Spirit uses to bring great power in preaching. And so we pull that point from that, that spiritually powerful preachers show you that they fear God, though they aren't even trying to do that. I suppose this is because of what Isaiah says. He says that the Spirit of the Lord that rested upon Jesus Christ is, among many things, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. When the Spirit of God fills a man and rests on a man, uh, it makes him tremble before God. He is coming into close contact with the God of the universe. And so if he can get up before you and talk about this stuff, but appear unaffected by it, something is not right. His own message is not resonating with his heart. Instead, we try to be like Paul to warm our hearts up to the fear of God. So to put it really simply, if you watch, you should be able to tell that this man takes God seriously. And indeed, that's what you should watch for. That's something you should listen for. Uh, does, does this man think that he needs to listen to God as much as he thinks I need to listen to God? Does this man take his own message seriously? Has his heart been broken and humbled by the gospel and by his own sin? Is he a flame for Jesus Christ? Now, he doesn't have to express that the way that you would express that, but he's got to express it one way or another because the heart speaks, uh, out of overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and so you got to see that come out. That means for any of us interested in preaching or in teaching his word, or I would say even when you go to proclaim the gospel to a friend, part of the work is to warm your own heart up to what God is saying. It takes work to get your heart in the right place, to turn from sin, to peer into the text and let it make you shake. You have to work to do that. It takes work to engage with the songs on Sunday morning and with the prayers on Sunday morning and get yourself into a place where you can preach in the fear of God. And preachers, that's on you to do. Teachers, that's on you to do as you're preparing your lessons. Let the word of God change you. And then let God use you to change others. Don't skip the all-crucial process of him working in your heart as you're preparing your lesson or your sermon. Okay, one last mark, and then we'll talk just a little bit about the result. Last point is from verse 6, and it's that spiritually powerful preaching is done wisely, even though it looks foolish to the world. We see that in verse 6 where he says, we actually do impart a wisdom. We actually are being wise here and sharing wisdom. 
although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. Right? So he's like, we're being wise in this, he's saying. We're not eschewing wisdom. We are even proclaiming wisdom to you. It's just a different wisdom than the wisdom that New York City runs on and the wisdom that Indianapolis runs on. So it feels foolish to the world. That means that even though they know they're going to look foolish to the world, preachers are working to be wise in God's eyes. We're studying the Proverbs and saying, Lord, what do you have to say about speaking that would help me preach more wisely? We're spending time in the Word trying to get everything we can out of this so that we can be wrung for all that we're worth before our people. We're laboring to overcome our weaknesses and even to get better at public speaking, as Paul was actually really good at public speaking. We're trying to do this in wisdom, just probably not the wisdom that you're going to see tonight when you watch the Super Bowl because it's just a different thing that we're trying to do. So we do labor to be wise. We do labor to share good wisdom with you. We just aren't doing that in the way you might be used to. So that means that as you're watching a sermon being preached, if it doesn't meet the world's expectations, that's just fine. But if it's actually foolish, like biblically foolish, and if the man proclaiming is actually biblically a fool, That's a problem, right? Preachers have to strive for wisdom and for Christian maturity in their conduct. All right, those are six marks of spiritually powerful preaching. What happens when the Lord does that? Well, that's the difference that's in verse 5. He said, I did this because I wanted your faith to not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When preachers get out of our own way and the Spirit of God just speaks in power, people leave with their confidence in the power of God because that's what they just saw demonstrated. By contrast, when preachers get in our own way by showing you how great we are and how fancy we are and how good we are at this and by not really trembling before God and not doing all the things that Paul talks about, the best we could hope for is that somebody might leave impressed with the preacher or impressed with the church. Now that's important because one of the things we're trying to reckon with is what's going on in American church culture where we have more resources than ever before in our largest churches to put on a grand production and train our preachers in great public speaking skills and blast it on a screen all over the world. We are actually gathering right now in our mega churches the biggest single regular Sunday gatherings in the history of the church. We've never had Sunday gatherings as big as in our biggest churches right now. But at the same time, total church attendance has gone down 20% in the last four years. So you would think that we're getting better and better at what we're doing. But actually, people are leaving the church in mass. What, what's going on? Well, we've made it about ourselves and our abilities We've stopped praying that God would work in power when we preach. We've tried to draw people to our church and not the church down the road, but our church because we're better. Look how much better we are. We've made it about us and not about the power of God. And so that leads people to put their confidence in good production, 
or a skilled speaker or that feeling that things are really blowing up here or all the other things that we might put our confidence in. And then when those things fail, our faith fails also. This is why some of these big churches have swelled up like this and then the pastor falls into a moral failing and people don't just leave that church for another one. They don't just get discouraged, as surely you would if your pastor had a moral failing, but their faith is, is crushed because they were led to put their confidence in men and not in God. Now that mass exodus from the church is a symptom. The disease is preachers and churches who fear men and not God. The cure is for the Spirit of God to raise up preachers who tremble before him, who would rather have the whole room turn on them than say one word that displeases the Spirit. Preachers who fear God and are full of the Spirit. May the Lord make this a place where those kind of preachers are raised up. May the Lord make this pulpit the kind of pulpit where that kind of preaching is happening week after week. Let's pray and ask him for that. Pray for me while I pray for you.